we are launching into the last of our teaching series for the year before we barrel towards Christmas and Advent. And uh, yeah, as the title slide suggests, um, we're going to be looking at the the core Christian beliefs which unite us, this church, to the wider body of Christ throughout the world and throughout time. And in particular, we're going to be wending our way through um, one of the oldest and um, yeah, the oldest ecumenical creed, which is called the Apostles' Creed. Some of you might be familiar um, if you've ever, well, for those who were raised uh, in the Catholic or Anglican Church or any of those um, mainline churches, the Apostles' Creed will probably sit somewhere deep in the recesses of your mind. Um, it'll be almost um, muscle memory for you. <laughs> It might be in some dusty corridor. You might not remember every word, but you've probably recited about 20,000 times. <laughs> and then for those who are maybe from the um, maybe more Pentecostal or Free Church or Vineyard or, or other churches like that, um, you, might, you might never have heard of the Apostles' Creed or you might know of the Apostles' Creed and think, yeah, is it really necessary? Do we really need it? Um, isn't it all just a bit traditional and... Um, or maybe, you know, a bit extra biblical. Do we really need the creeds? We've got the Bible, don't we? It's all the scripture. Well, hopefully I can make the, make the case for the creeds this morning. Um, I'm reminded just on that thought of a, a slogan that I've seen from time to time on the odd church website. No creed but Christ. No book but the Bible. And that sounds really strident yeah, and confident. You know? <laughs> no book but the Bible, no creed but Christ. But, um, you know, that stridency, I think it belies a, a problem, a problematic thing which is going on there. And that, that is that um, there's, no, there's no, no view from nowhere. We all come to the Bible from somewhere. We all bring something of a perspective. We all have a theological lens that we wear whether we like it or not. Um, that theological lens might be something that we've examined, it might be something that we've um, critiqued, or it might not. It might be something that's sort of just tacitly adopted along the way. So to say no creed but Christ, even though it sounds good, is actually, on the one hand, it's, it's a little naive because we all have our creeds. And it's also... A little dangerous, it turns out. Um, it's dangerous because those unexamined and unconsciously held beliefs, um, they, they are the ones that shape our Bible reading. They're the ones that shape the theology that we bring to the Bible. They're the ones that shape the questions that we ask of the Bible. All of those creedal statements, uh, theological beliefs, come with us. So, Another way of thinking about it is to say, in this church, there are no non-theologians. We are all, all of us theologians in this room, and all of the children as well. Anyone who makes speech about God, anyone who thinks thoughts about God, is doing theology. There's no good, there's, there's no non-theologians. There's only good theologians and bad theologians. Um, we don't really have a choice about whether we're going to do theology or not. We're doing theology. We get to choose whether we want to do it well or whether we want to do it badly. And the consequences are, are, 
are high, the stakes are high, because good theology sets people free. Good theology brings life, and bad theology hurts people and brings death. So, so it's important, I think, for us to think theologically and to understand the, the lens and the creeds and the beliefs and statements that we bring along with us in our faith. So, what does this have to do with the Apostles' Creed? Why are we focusing on this creed in particular? Um, I mean, yeah, who says that the Apostles' Creed is a good source of theology? Maybe it's bad theology. How do we know? Are we really that much better off with this product of the early church? Um, I mean, <clears throat> if it was so important, couldn't God have just put it as a little appendix at the back of the Bible for us? Like, <laughs> I mean, um, well, I, I sort of kid, but, but before I really get into answering that question, um, I should probably just back up and just talk a little bit about what the creed is, um, what creeds are, so that we can all be on the same page. It's obviously more than a, a 90s rock band. Um, <laughs> so a creed is simply a statement of belief. The word creed comes from the Latin credo, which in English means I believe. Pretty simple, eh? Um, so that's where we get the word creed from. And, um, and early on in the life of the church, um, when they're, well, in the beginnings of the early Christian communities, there was no New Testament. Sometimes I think, I share that with students, and that's kind of like a mind-blowing moment all of a sudden. There was no Bible in the early church, in the sense, apart from the Old Testament. That's the only Bible they had. So without the New Testament um, to rely on, without the New Testament to guide their theology, what did they have? They had to rely on something um, because they were in a context of, on the one hand, they had the sort of Greco-Roman world out here, and on the other hand, they had the, the Jewish world from which they were coming from. And increasingly, those two worlds were, um, were they were getting out of step with the Greco-Roman world, and they were getting out of step with the Jewish world. And that led to lots of tension and lots of mess and lots of relationship breakdowns, lots of arguments and lots of trouble in these communities. And in many ways, the New Testament we have is just a record of all of these messy relationship breakdowns and all the letters that were being written to try to fix them. Um, you know, most of Paul's letters are written like, with an occasion in mind to a particular community to address a certain issue because they didn't have a Bible. Um, or even the Gospels. They, they're not just written sort of out of the blue. They're written specifically to bring clarity and guidance to Christian communities who are struggling with one form, of, one form or another of confusion about who Jesus is, what he has achieved, and what the implications of all of that is for the way they were meant to live their lives together. And so, like I said, that the New Testament itself took a really long time to actually come together. Like, generations of early Christians lived without a New Testament, lived and died without a New Testament. So how did they, those people, stay true to the, to the tradition? How did they stay true to orthodoxy, to what was true and right and good about our faith? Certainly the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit was a part of that, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit remains part of that for us. Um, it's a key factor. But working within that process was this broad but coherent tradition that was being um, transmitted from the apostles and early church leaders on down and along to these new 
church leaders, these emerging church leaders who are planting churches around the, around the world. So Paul's a classic example of this, um, whether he's writing to the Thessalonians, encouraging them to stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter, or to Timothy, <clears throat> exhorting him to keep as the pattern of sound teaching what you heard from me, and to guard it as a treasure that was entrusted to you. So this teaching that Paul's talking about in writing to Timothy and writing to the Thessalonians is not just his random collection of thoughts, but it's this solid thing which he refers to as this tradition, this, this good deposit that was entrusted into you, this treasure. Um, <clears throat> and it was not just something, like I say, that Paul came up with, it was something that he himself received from the apostles and from Jesus himself. So we see this in action in um, 1 Corinthians, where he says, For what I received, I passed on to you, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. So what Paul's saying is, I received it, and now I'm passing it on. So this is a, an example of this chain of transmission that's going on in the early communities of the church. Or again, um, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And then he goes into describing the Last Supper. So Paul's saying, I received this, this from, from Jesus himself, and now I'm telling you, pass this on. This is the core thing you must not lose. And all of these statements um, and all of this teaching predates the written Gospels. So this one, for instance, where we have this record of what the Last Supper looked like, written to the Corinthians decades before the Gospels were written. <clears throat> so um, it really gives us a window into what the, yeah, what, the, what the early church thought was to be those of most importance things, to be those central, core, stable, non-negotiable, must-be-passed-on things. This was the apostolic tradition that's being passed along. <clears throat> and... Um, it's an example of the beliefs of the apostles. So the early Christians, <clears throat> and I should just pause and just say, the reason I'm kind of going into this stuff is because we're not going to go into it again for the next seven weeks. We're going to be in the creed, but I'm just setting us up so that we know why are we looking at this thing? Because we could be looking at all kinds of things, but why are we looking at this creed? So the early Christians were, were a bookish sort of people, and they, they loved writing letters to each other, they were actually quite innovative in that way. They, they, they invented a whole form of bookbinding. The codex, which we use now, was invented by Christians in the early stages of the church. So, so we have lots of their letters that, that turned up in um, you know, various dusty places in the Middle East. And um, it's from these letters that we get a glimpse into what the early church and what early Christians believed to be the essential aspects of their faith. So... The early Christians were letter writers, and they, in all of the letters, they they talk about what's important over and over again. So we have good evidence of what the early Christians thought was important, and they also were really big on instructing new believers. So remembering again, they don't have a New Testament, so what they do is they really take it seriously, this thing of passing it on properly and carefully, and they'll do this often around um, baptism, around the initiate, initiation into the church. So. The tradition of getting um, a baptismal candidate, someone who is getting ready for baptism, 
to confess their beliefs publicly um, according to a tightly worded, um, compact formula. This process spread throughout the church. It became kind of best practice. And it developed into what we now call the Apostles' Creed. So, the Apostles' Creed, that's kind of where it comes from. That's where it fits in church history. That's where it fits in relation to, to where we are today. And here's the point, I guess, the big point which I'm trying to make. The Apostles' Creed is not a extra-biblical thing. It's not some add-on to our faith. Or it's not even a replacement. It's actually a tightly-packed summary of the apostolic tradition, the apostles' non-negotiable teachings. And moreover, nothing in the Apostles' Creed is not already found in Scripture. So there's nothing that it adds to Scripture in that sense. It's not designed to replace Scripture, but it's designed to kind of train our eye as we read Scripture. It's designed to, to shape our ways of thinking about what are the key things that are going on in Scripture. <clears throat> and it's also designed liturgically to kind of help us join in to the, the chorus of the church. So it's not just uh, instructions, but it's also... Um, it has a, a sacramental quality. It sort of initiates us into uh, into the community, like in the baptismal moment. And there's lots more that I could say about the Apostles' Creed, but I think that's probably enough. There's probably other things you could do if you wanted to go and look into it. And if I still haven't convinced you that it's worthwhile, then I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I'm going to give up at this point. <laughs> but anyway, it's not empty tradition, and it's not a foreign import. It's something that's grown up out of the Bible, and it's a gift. It's a gift to us. It's a gift that will align our minds and hearts to truth. So with that, um, let's do something really different for a vineyard church. <laughs> Let's uh, recite this thing. Um, so why don't you stand with me? Uh, we'll try not to drone, but um, we probably will. <laughs> so along with me, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. You can take your seats. So we're going to be unpacking this kind of weird document here for the next seven weeks, and we're going to be showing how it's emerged out of Scripture and what it can do for our faith. But I want to just pause for a moment and just get you to have a look again at this thing that you just said. <laughs> Is there anything in this creed which you don't kind you don't quite understand, maybe if you're really honest with yourself. Are there are there elements in this creed which still remain opaque or uh, unclear to you? And it's um it's I think it's good. It's good the way the creed forces us to look at some weird parts of our faith. Because it's a weird faith. 
we've got some pretty weird claims. <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 also good because it forces us to look at elements that we probably have put in the too hard or the too weird basket of our of our faith. Things that we're like, okay, yeah, I can say the creed, but don't ask me to explain it. Um, and I think you know we we all just recited this thing, we all spoke it out. We said I believe it. But if we're honest, I think you know there's lots of it that we don't really understand. There's lots, and that does does that make our declaration dishonest? Does that make it you know when we say I believe that da 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 da, when we don't even know what we're saying, does that make it dishonest? Like I I don't think so. I think I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think in a way, like I was saying, the creed is more a, a it's something that we speak out. It's it's a performative rather than an informative thing more sacramental than instructional because when we say I believe something new is brought into being it's a speech act it's a little bit akin to say a judge in a courtroom saying not guilty over somebody and in that speech act of saying not guilty that person's changed and the whole courtroom has changed and something something has significantly has changed in someone's identity when that's when that is uttered. So words change things in that in that way. They're not just information. Or like a marriage vow. You know, we, we stand at the altar and we, we exchange vows and we make these promises in good faith without really knowing what what we're what what this will look like, what this what this promise is gonna look like, how it's gonna turn out. That doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that our speech creates a reality or invites a reality into being. And I think the creed is, is an example of this. It's, it's not just um, a, an information sheet to put at the back of our Bible, but it's actually something to bring into our, into our worship. St. Augustine, um, reflecting on this interesting or strange dynamic of, of faith and certainty, suggests something which is kind of funny. He says, if you can't understand, believe. And then you'll understand. <laughs> and well, you know, that might strike us as as a recipe for being the most gullible person in the world or being hoodwinked for the rest of your life by every second salesman. Um, there's there's something much deeper, I think, at work here in, in what Augustine is getting at. Because, you know, when we really think about it, the truth is our lives would be utterly impossible if we didn't make statements of belief, if we didn't put our trust in things um, without having to verify them. So the vast majority of things in the world that we hold to be true, we don't know. We haven't seen them. I don't know if Paris exists. I've never been there. I've never seen it. Sure, I don't, I don't believe what everyone else says. I haven't seen it, so it's not real. <laughs> um, you know, if we lived that way, people would think we were slightly insane. Um, or, you know, similarly, I think we walk into this this building. <laughs> Is that uh, that's the other church? Um, yeah, I'm sure that this building, you know, was constructed well. I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure it was all built to code. <laughs> not that I've seen that piece of paper um, and maybe I should look at it because you know I just want to double check before I come into this building was this building built to code 
And maybe even if I do get that piece of paper, well, how do I know the building inspector wasn't lying? Or how do I know that the building inspector actually was watching the builders? And what if they were watching the builders, but the builders were deceiving the building manager, you know, of the code? And what if, uh, you know, what if the, um, no, all of a sudden I'm feeling a little bit unsafe <laughs> in this building. <laughs> um, or, you know, um, maybe I could go outside, but then, you know, I'm certainly not going to trust the bus driver. He, he probably doesn't have a real driver's license, and I can't go to the supermarket because who knows what that food is and where it's come from, and who knows what's going on in that room with my children. You know, they said they're looking after them, but so you can see a life without trust is spirals into madness very, very quickly. And so in this sense, there is uh, an important dynamic to this thing about um, belief coming before understanding. Trust coming before understanding or verification. And that doesn't mean that Christianity is this irrational leap into the dark. It doesn't mean that Christians are people who don't think and don't investigate and don't verify things. Going back to um, Augustine's quote, we see that, um, that, that belief is what leads us to understanding. It's in that order. So the creed is full of these great mysteries, and it speaks to things we, we can't observe, we can't verify, we can't put it into a test tube. But as we take our first steps into the faith and our subsequent steps into the faith, and as we recite the thing and we keep saying, yeah, I believe this, I do believe this, um, we discover that we, we get eyes to see God's good world. We get eyes to see the, that the promises that he's made and the, and the truth that we're speaking out does hold up. It is true. God, you know, taste and see that the Lord is good, like he invites us into this thing. So the first words of the creed, I believe, are really vital. They're not just a starter. They, they get us going. They're the first place we start, I believe, and they flow into the next lines. I believe in God the Father. God is a funny word. Think about it. I just remember I had a prop, which I forgot to bring out. Some money. Um, um, in some ways, it's a, it's a stand-in word to describe the thing that we can't understand. You know, God is this beyond understanding thing. Um, and it's very impersonal word, God, because it's like a category of thing. It's not a name, not a person. Gods and goddesses. So talking to God, talking to God is, is like, um, talking about God is like talking about human or talking about mountain or talking about rock. The creed doesn't leave us in this weird like limbo of ab abstraction. I was thinking about the um, American money, how it says, in God we trust. And it's like, okay, yeah, but which God are you talking about? I'm not sure we're talking about the same God. Because there's lots of different ways we can use that word. And I've often thought that when, um, when I've met real strident atheists who say, I, don't, I couldn't believe in a God who's such and such and such. Or, I don't believe in this God of yours. It's like, I don't think I believe in the God you don't believe in either, <laughs> to be honest. The God you're describing does not sound like the God I believe in. Um, so the creed departs from such fuzzy and impersonal language. It, it gets out of that fuzzy language about God, and it plunges us into this very specific language about God as Father. And that that concept of God as Father comes from Jesus. It's not uh, something that the church invented. It's something that they noticed Jesus using. 
faithful Jews um, tended to avoid talking about God as Father. It was it was something that was a little bit too much, like the gods and goddesses of their time and of the ancient world. So to talk about God as Father, um, yeah, it evoked all of the kind of salacious stuff that gods were getting up to in those days. They they talked about God in other ways, um, but Jesus broke from this norm. He he spoke almost exclusively of God as Father. He addressed God as Father, and he used really um, intimate language, deeply familiar language like Abba Father, um, to address God. And so we can't really even understand Jesus without understanding him as Son of God. And that's how he understood himself and how he presented himself as the Son. And the Gospel of John in particular reminds us um, that that. This was uh, that, that the Son only speaks the Father's words and can do nothing except what the Father does. So, so Jesus was completely turned over to the will of the Father. Everything that the Father was doing, Jesus was doing. Everything the Father wasn't doing, Jesus wasn't doing. Um, and we see this in, in John 14, where Jesus says to his disciples, they ask him, you know, show us the Father. Show us the Father. Who is this Father that you always talk about? He says, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. What this means is that we're, we're not allowed to project whatever we want onto God. We're not allowed to project any of our curiosities about fatherhood onto God. Um, we're, not, we're not given that permission. He's not a slightly better version of our dad. He's, he is what we see in Jesus. We have a living pattern. We hear the Father in the voice of Jesus. We see the Father in Jesus' love. We see his wisdom, his judgment, his compassion in Jesus. If you want to know what, Jesus, you want to know what God's the Father's judgment looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what the Father's compassion looks like, look at Jesus. So he, he has the full representation, as the, as the writer of the Hebrews says, the Son is the full radiance of God's glory and exact representation of his being. This is, I think, remarkable in itself and easy to lose when we're getting into the philosophical ways we think about fatherhood. But um, what's even more amazing than that, I think, is that that Jesus' relationship to his Father was unique, but it wasn't exclusive. It was inclusive. So what he was doing was always bringing people into this relationship with the Father. He taught his followers to pray to God in the same way that he did, use the same language that he did. He spoke of God as my Father and your Father. And he said, you know, he talks about your Heavenly Father in Matthew, and he taught his disciples to pray, our Father. So the language of the creed, the very at the very get-go, is just following Jesus. We're just following what he's, the pattern that he's laid down. And Paul understood this too when he wrote about the way that the Holy Spirit um, cries out in us, Abba Father. It's the Holy Spirit which brings that language into being in us, in our prayer. So the bottom line is this. The fatherhood of God is not a, um, it's, it's, in the creed, it's not a product of theological or philosophical speculation. It doesn't come from the ground up, but it comes from the comes from the top down. It comes from heaven. And the creed invites us to know God in this way, as Father. 
as our Father, as my Father. How are we doing? I don't think we're going to get there, are we? <laughs> There's a lot. You know, we've only got I believe in God the Father. There's so much to say in this thing. And I guess that's the point. The creed, like, is here to kind of extend our theology and stretch us and, and, and enrich our ways of thinking about God. The, the creed also speaks about God the Father Almighty. I'll just, I'll just say a few words about that, and then I think I'm just going to call it a day. Um, so what's the significance of this word, Almighty? Um, it's one we probably don't use much or use often, and we probably like might think of it as just a synonym for really, 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 really mighty, <laughs> like really strong. Um, but it's actually not. It's um, we're missing an important reality in the creed. If we think Almighty just means really, 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 really mighty, um, because if God was just really, really strong, if He was mighty, but not Almighty then divine power would just be another form of power. It would just be another form of manipulation and control. It would be, if you can picture a spectrum in your mind, it would be somewhere on the spectrum between weak and strong. God would be at the strong end, but he'd still be on this spectrum of weak and strong. But Almighty doesn't exist on that spectrum of power. It's just not even there. Almighty, Almighty is what enables that whole spectrum to be. It's a wholly different kind of power, almighty power. That the early Christians were also emphasizing something significant and countercultural again in their time. Unlike their pagan gods whose power was limited and sporadic and random and um, in competition with other powers, God does not compete. He's not in competition with other powers. He's not jostling for space out there. His power is the source of all power. And the reason why weak things and strong things exist. He is the one who um, enables the created things to have power in themselves. He's what sustains and nourishes the power of all creatures. So God the Father is almighty. And that means he's totally free and totally sovereign. And that the only reason he can relate to the world with total love, with total patience with total generosity and gentleness is because he is almighty if he wasn't almighty he would have to manipulate he would have to control ben myers in this book which is a really good book by the way little one i like little books um ben myers puts it like this he says true power is not the ability to control controlling behavior is a sign of weakness and insecurity True power is the ability to love and enable without reserve. God's power, like the power of a good parent or teacher, is the capacity to nourish other agents and to help their freedom to grow. Without the sovereignty of a good parent, children have a diminished sense of their own agency. In the same way, God's sovereignty is what secures human freedom, not what threatens it. And I think it's the same for us as Christians. We can live with gentleness in this life because God is almighty. If he wasn't, I don't think we could because we know that God's in control. We can live a life of forgiveness because we know God is almighty. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not up to us to sort that stuff out, to do the repayment, the tit for tat. Because God is almighty, 
we can live gentle, humble, forgiving lives. We don't worry about the future. We don't try to control our destiny because Jesus says, I'm the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He's almighty. When, when God is almighty, all power in the world finds its right place in him. When he's only mighty, sometimes able to change circumstances, sometimes caught off guard, shocked when he opens the newspaper in the morning to see what's going on in Ukraine or that kind of God doesn't allow us to live free lives. We get back into control. So the creed helps us to cast out that anxiety. We believe in God the Father, Almighty. Amen.